This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. journey through the breach and into the streets of Malifaux. Today we've got two quick yards for you, snow on a tombstone and into the breach. Pull your Ethervox close and enjoy the show. Snow on a tombstone. Jameis sat atop a large crypt, lazily directing his undead minions as he looked down on the city. He smiled as he beheld the sprawling ruins of an ancient forgotten people, and then, squinting, held one thumb over them, as a child might before he crushes an ant. Malifaux had been called the greatest discovery in the history of mankind, and Seamus had to agree. Everyone sought relics and treasures, wonders beyond their wildest dreams, but he had actually found one. In an old library, long abandoned by its collector, Jameis had found the dust-covered book containing science unknown in the world he was born to. The secrets to raising the dead. He brought down his thumb with a gleeful snigger. Oh, hey, Molly girl, pay attention. Jameis drew out a watch from his breast pocket and noted the time. Springing to his feet, he looked toward the outskirts of the city. There he could easily make out the flicker of the breach, the portal that connected this world to the earth. On his watch, the second hand clicked away until it struck the hour. And just then, a powerful locomotive burst through the great opening, a black surge of smoke billowing to the distant sky. Right on time, Molly girl. The whole thing's one well-oiled machine it is. Things a wonder. Seamus snapped closed his pocket watch and tucked it away before turning his head toward Molly Squidpidge, who was seated beside him on the crypt. Reanimation didn't seem to agree with her, as she was hunched over, throwing up another mouthful of blood onto the ground with a sickly cough. Damn, Molly, you're a disgusting creature. Jameis didn't understand where all the blood could come from. It had been several months since her death, and he thought the girl would dry out eventually, but she continued to bubble with an unending river of red ooze. It was almost enough to disturb even his morbid thoughts. Almost. Jumping down from his perch, he took a moment to adjust his top hat and smooth his latest tailored city coat with his hands. Nearby, his cadre of undead harlots labored at digging up a grave. They had been the entire working staff of Madame Sybil's saloon, and since his arrival in the city, he had developed a deep affection for them. He was certain they were just as lovely in undeath as in life. They weren't quite as smart, however. Only one of them had kept the shovel he had given her. The others resorted to clawing the earth with their hands. Despite their inefficient technique, the crack of the lone shovel against wood proved they'd reached their goal. He darted over to peer down into the grave, curious to see what state Philip Toomers was in. One of his girls prized open the casket lid with the strength she certainly hadn't possessed in life, and he saw the desiccated corpse of the late Mr. Toomers. 
Its time in the dry dirt had stretched the skin over the skull and high cheekbones, and darkened it too. It looked like a mannequin made of boiled leather. Uncle Seamus wants to know what you know, old boy. Come out and talk with me a bit, won't you? He cackled as one of his harem struggled to haul out the body. As the girl worked, he noticed a white speck land on her red dress. Blinking his eyes, thinking he was imagining it, he turned to look into the sky, where he saw a swirl of clouds overhead and a dusting of snow beginning to accumulate around him. Snow? Isn't it July? Seamus asked of no one in particular. He was surprised when Molly answered him. Wiping her bloody mouth on her arm, Molly turned her eyes up to the sky. With a voice that sounded quite certain, she said, It's December. As if responding to the sound of her voice, the wind churned with sudden force, a blizzard springing up tight on its heels. Seamus drew his coat around him, feeling the chill in his bones. He watched, amazed, as drifts built up around him, blanketing the cemetery with fresh powder. Where the city had been clearly visible only moments ago, the swirling snow now hid it from sight. The whole world had shrunk around Seamus, and only the graveyard existed. Just a few yards from where he stood, a slope of snow formed against the side of a crypt. To Seamus' astonishment, the slope lurched. It was still for a moment. Then the snowdrift shuddered again, and a giant figure began to rise. It shook the snow from its body, revealing a titan, the ice of its body as blue and dead as the heart of a glacier. Seamus, amazed but unshaken, whispered a soft, Tings of wonder, before flinging open his coat. Holstered beneath was an ornate pistol, which he drew and leveled at the creature. The gun held only a single bullet. Seamus had never needed any more. With an ear-gouging blast, the golem was slammed against the crypt behind it. Molly, still seated on the crypt's roof, toppled to the ground as the structure crumbled beneath her. Seamus took no notice as he pulled Philip Toomer's corpse from the ground, ordering his undead harem out of the hole. All around him, the accumulating snow began to shiver and shake as tiny demons, smaller versions of the titan, appeared. With a curt gesture, Seamus sent his undead ladies to contend with the creatures. The monstrous women hissed like feral animals freed from their leashes and launched themselves upon the icy creatures, clawing them back to the ground. For every one rent to shards, more of the creatures appeared, and soon his rotten bells were overwhelmed. Sibyl, Seamus snapped, reloading his pistol. Carry this body. Graveyard's getting them white feisty. Unlike the rest of his undead entourage who'd been curvaceous and attractive in life, Sibyl was round and fleshy. Undeath had gifted her already sturdy frame with additional strength, and she easily hefted Philip's body from the ground as she slung him over her shoulder. About to abandon the battle behind him, Seamus glimpsed a silhouette of a woman through the swirling snow. And what a silhouette. He would be the first to concede that he was not the most focused of men, but what red-blooded male wouldn't take time for a profile like that? Miss, you're Philip Toomer's sister, he called out. Lover! Fascinating family, to be true. The tempest stilled, the veil of snow falling away to reveal the woman. She wore a long coat, striped stockings and boots with narrow heels. On her head, a warm, furry hat and a pair of goggles, although he didn't care much for the goggles. Her voice was just as cold as the frigid wind. No, but Philip Tumor's legacy belongs to me. Leave his body and go. Now keep your thermals on, love, Jameis smirked. 
It's not be hasty. Tell you what, I'll ship him to you when I'm done with him. I swear it, I do. You have an address in the city? He didn't wait for her answer, lifting his pistol to fire on her. With a motion of her hand, though, the wind slapped a sheet of snow across her and she was gone. He didn't have much time to laugh at his own wit, for behind him he heard a coarse grunt. Turning, he saw Sybil held aloft by the ice titan. It had somehow survived not just Seamus Elephant Stopper, but also the collapse of the tomb, and now its cold fist was wrapped around Philip's torso. The creature attempted to shake Sybil's grip on the corpse, the fat madam hanging gamely from Philip's flailing trousers. Molly, too, had managed to clear herself from the ruined crypt. After coughing a lungful of blood into the snow, she climbed to her feet and began to stagger toward her master. Lifting an arm weakly, she called out for him in a faint voice, but the howl of wind drowned out her words. At any other time, Seamus would have been amused at the sight of Sybil flailing in the air, her fat legs swinging like stolen sausages in the mouth of a stray dog. His patience, however, had run short. Reloading his pistol, he fired directly into the chest of the blue golem, sending it staggering backwards. The golem's grip and Sybil's, too, remained true, and Philip's body lost the tug of war, pieces of him scattering into the snow. Sybil rolled away with a full set of legs, while the golem held grimly onto the torso as it toppled backwards, arms flailing. Behind it, the tiny form of Molly Squidpidge stood motionless in the snow, the shadow of the construct completely eclipsing her. She was helpless as the giant teetered above her, lifting her arms to shield herself. The giant crashed down, just missing her, and the tremendous weight of its body broke through into the sunken tombs beneath. The cracked earth heaved as the creature vanished, and Molly's already unsteady legs lost their footing. Her arms windmilled awkwardly, and with a cry she tipped backward and fell into Philip's open grave. Her misfortune had not concluded, as a drift of snow shifted and spilled over into the grave, burying her. The corpse of Philip didn't fare much better. As the monster fell, Philip's head struck one of the gravestones and popped off like a cork from a bottle, spinning into the air in a high arc. Seamus held his breath as the lifeless head travelled through the air. His heart stopped as it plummeted to the earth, disappearing into the snow covering the ground. Directly across from him, an equal distance from where the head had landed, Seamus saw the woman with the fur hat. He narrowed his eyes, locking onto her icy gaze before he took off like a dart racing toward his prize. The woman, too, rushed toward the head, but Seamus was the victor, diving forward and sliding through the snow. The head slipped through his fingers, as did his gun. Expecting an attack from the woman, he was dumbstruck as she sped past him. Sitting up, he dusted the snow from his face and watched as she bent over the dismembered torso, still in the clutch of her ruined golem. Reaching inside the man's jacket, he drew out a small object and held it aloft as if it was some great trophy. Seamus squinted, trying to identify the object. There was a book. I thought you were after his hat stand. He cradled the severed head with one arm and pointed his gun at the woman. The woman frowned, and for a second time a swirl of snow snapped like a sheet in a gale to obscure her presence. When it cleared again, she was gone. Overhead, the angry clouds of the storm began to dissipate and the snow relented. Dusting himself off and rising to his feet, Jameis saw that the creatures his rotten bells had struggled with had become lifeless mounds of snow, and his girls seemed no worse for wear. 
Heaving a sigh, he went to check on Sybil. Kicking her sharply, but he was certain tenderly in the ribs, the morbid creature stirred and regained her feet with her usual grace. With a gesture, he summoned his grotesque companions to his side. Okay, let's go. I've got what I came for. Starting off toward the west, he held Philip's head before him. I hope you are worth all this effort, Mr. Toomers. As the group headed off, Molly lay forgotten and lifeless in Philip Toomers' grave. Yes, sir, the junior officer said with some disbelief. He'd never met a member of the Witch Hunter Task Force, but Deputy Samuel Hopkins didn't seem to look the part. The dusty old poncho and ragged, wide-brimmed hat didn't live up to the mix of mystical and stately the young officer had expected. He did see the heavy six-shooter that hung on the man's hip, and the round shield the man was holding in his face emblazoned with a ram's head. Guild was spelled in gold letters across the bottom. It was proof that the man was who he claimed to be, the legendary Samuel Hopkins. Samuel tucked the badge beneath his poncho and ducked under the rope that marked the crime scene. The broken earth in the graveyard looked as if it had been upset by an earthquake, with upturned gravestones and crypts smashed to rubble. A light dusting of snow remained visible in the few small drifts undisturbed by the morning's events. Several officers busied themselves around the site searching for evidence. There's quite a lot of damage and only a single casualty, an innocent bystander from the looks of it. I suspect that it was some low-level turf war. On the outskirts of the city, this sort of gang violence happens frequently. The officer paused. Sir, if you don't mind me asking, why was a witch hunter sent to investigate a simple case of vandalism? The snow didn't seem out of place to you, officer? Samael asked bluntly before hunkering down next to a cluster of footprints in the mud. He noted the direction of their travel and lifted his head, looking to the south, into the city itself. Taking a small stick, he drew a square in the mud around one of the footprints. It was a slender print with a narrow boot heel. I want a cast of this print. I think we'll find this footprint matches those found outside the sanitarium last month. The officer knelt next to Samael, looking curiously over the man's shoulder. The sanitarium. There was an unseasonable snowstorm on the day of Philip Toomer's murder, too, Samael responded, rising to his feet. Philip Toomer's? the officer asked. Familiar with the case? No, but there's a Philip Toomer's buried in his graveyard, sir. His grave's been dug up. And gang fights generally involve the digging up of graves, do they? These are the sort of details that would have been helpful when I asked you if there was anything significant earlier, officer, Samael responded. The two men walked over to the gravesite. Two other officers were already there, one scrolling notes on a clipboard. It was obviously not Philip Toomer's in the grave. The female body wore white burial clothes, and her long, dark hair was tangled around her neck. A wide wound, slick with fresh blood, drenched her chest. Samael dropped to one knee and frowned. Hoist that body out of the grave! When none of the men moved, Samael stood and grasped a gaping officer by his collar, pulling him close. Guild, now, fetch the death marshals. The death marshals? Really? sounded more like a plea than a question. That is Molly Squidpidge, the male said. Seamus will come back for her.
listening to Tales of Malifaux on the Breachside Broadcast. Brought to you by Uncle Catfish's Firearm Emporium. Every firearm worth its script in one place. Those nasty Neverborn keeping you up at night? Are you concerned with the safety of you and yours? Well, well, well... I do apologise about this, dear listener. Won't be a moment. Well, Uncle Catfish is just the right thing for you. He's got rifles, carbines, revolvers, anything you could need at just the right price. Uncle Catfish is the best place to buy your firearms. Now, back to our show. Into the breach. There is, Miss Victoria, literally no place on earth like Malifaux. In a little less than an hour, we will pass through the breach of the Great Barrier and go beyond this world into another, into the heart of a city built by a civilization and history unknown to us. This world, this city, is possessed of a living energy that permeates all things. You'll feel it in you. The old man gave his new acquaintance a sly look, an expression that sat easily on his dry, weathered features. You'll feel it change you. Before we even pass into that world, you'll feel it flow from the breach's crackling circumference like a flood washing over you. You can't find this energy anywhere but Malifaux. Victoria, a young woman with striking razor-sharp features, boyishly short hair, and a sheathed sword lying provocatively across her lap, gave a polite nod. Everyone had heard fantastical tales of Malifaux, of course. From terrifying childhood stories to impossible-to-believe stage plays to breathless and unreliable first-person accounts in the newspapers. But it was quite another thing to hear them from a man who had clearly been there before, while on a train merely moments away from the place itself. Victoria realized her heart was racing, just like it did before a battle. The man, Leviticus he called himself, was clearly warming to his subject and carried on. Whether the energy hardens in the ground to form crystals or whether the crystals are the source of the energy, radiating it through everything else in the world, the solid state of this energy is called soulstone. It is the currency of titans. Whoever possesses soulstone has the power to change the world, to topple nations, to blot out races, and to manifest any wildest whim as reality. This is the reason, you see, that the guild regulates soulstone trade so strictly. It is no coincidence that the guild seems ever more pervasive each day. Its power grows as its store of soulstone increases, and every day they strip more of this precious mineral from the ground. Look now through the window and see the long series of cars that follow us. All of them are empty now, but tomorrow this train will be burdened with the fruit of Malifaux, the elixir that transforms men into gods. It is this mineral... This soul stone that can make anything possible. Whatever agenda the guild pursues in its dim corridors, we can only hope it's benign, true? Here I joke about far-fetched conspiracy theories when I should warn you of the dangers of this place. See, even now you can see the glow of the breach on the horizon. I fear you will soon arrive and be ill-prepared for the dangers that await you. 
I do not embellish the atmosphere of Malifaux. Whether it is the magic of the place or simply the promise of limitless wealth, this city brings out the worst in men. There is murder in the air. It gets in the blood. The constant threat of death from the world's hostile environment, from the plague of creatures that haunt it, the never-born, causes men to act like animals. Despite the towering ruins of civilization you will find there, this is the wilderness. There is no law in Malifaux. Men will lie, cheat, steal, and even cannibalize their fellow man for even the most meager gain. Just the men? Victoria asked, a mischievous glint in her eye. How dull. Leviticus frowned. Whatever your business there, it is not the sort of place one calls home. I have lived in many places, sir. Can't say I have ever felt at home in any of them. But I always sleep well at night. Victoria drummed her fingers pointedly on the sheathed sword. Your city of Malifaux is not the only place one finds thieves and murderers. It may be the only city that actively imports thieves and murderers, however, Leviticus said, still frowning. Dressed practically, Victoria wore a red traveling cape around her slender form and thick serviceable boots on her feet. A pair of crossed belts hung low on her hips, and a sleek firearm rested on her right hip. Across her lap the scabbard held a long, curved oriental blade. The obvious craftsmanship in the scabbard sat at odds with her plain clothes. Scallops of warm, stained cherry wood set in pale teak to give the illusion of swirling cherry blossoms. The beautiful scabbard had managed to attract the attention of at least one of Victoria's companions. Although despite her drumming her fingers on it, he was still making far too good an effort of not looking directly at it. Across from her, the only other passengers on this particular car were her self-appointed tour guide and frightener of young travellers, Leviticus, and his female companion. The man looked like he was fresh off the boat from the Empire, with his dress coat and starched shirt, like some erudite scholar more at home in vaulted libraries than frontier trains. His attention to etiquette and expansive vocabulary weren't virtues yet in style in the New World. Aside from his rather elevated sense of self-importance, the man seemed rather advanced in age as well. He carried a cane, but that seemed insufficient to accommodate the limp Victoria had noticed as he took his seat back at Eagle Valley Station. A seat, Victoria noted at the time, he had had to limp several carriages to reach past countless of other potential audiences for his monologues. He wore a kind of mechanized brace on his leg that still facilitated his ability to wear neatly pressed trousers. One of his hands, too, bore evidence of this curious augmentation, a technology Victoria had never seen before. It reminded her of clockwork toys she'd seen in boutique windows back east. His escort introduced only his Alice, she had similar modifications, though significantly poorer repair. It seemed as if her entire arm had been replaced with mechanized parts, and these were rusted and worn, and would make an eerie whine when in motion. She seemed to be barely into her teen years, decades younger than her chaperone, and dressed in a long skirt and humble blouse that clashed with a tomboyish demeanor. It was this girl, Alice, who had openly studied Victoria's sword, her eyes wide with an endearing curiosity. Occasionally during Leviticus' sustained lectures on the annual rainfall, chief industries, and political climate of Malifaux, she would nudge him in the ribs with her rusty elbow. The squeak of the movement in the sharp corner of her elbow made the gesture impossible to ignore, though Leviticus did his best, batting the girl's arm away each time she tried to win his attention. Victoria turned to Alice, about to test the pair's intentions with a plausibly true tale of the sword's discovery. 
It was then, however, that Victoria felt a sudden warmth. Her skin flushed, and she lifted her hand to draw her cloak close, conscious of the rosy blush spreading down across her chest. She was suddenly acutely conscious of the racing blood in her veins and the martial drumming of her heart. A wondrous excitement filled her. Turning her head to the window of the train car, Victoria saw the breach swing into view behind a low escarpment. Never before had she seen such an astounding sight. A walled frontier town was huddled around an enormous loop of brilliant electric flame. The image reminded her of the fiery hoops lions leapt through at the circus, but this fire was a brilliant blue, and burned with long, wispy tendrils that seemed to tether it to the sky. The tracks cut a fortified line right through the town, and the train charged along at gathering speed right at the circle. Through it, Victoria could see tall buildings crowded together in the distance. They seemed to shift whenever she was not looking right at them, furtive and sinister movements that could not possibly be real. They don't do that up close, Leviticus said, as if reading her mind. He was craning his neck to look through the breach as well. An illusion, then, Victoria said. A mirage caused by the breach? Leviticus turned back to her, his expression unreadable, and with a gaze that looked at her across impossible eons. Yes, if you like. Ever more intense, the energy flooded into Victoria's blood, making it feel as if it were boiling in her veins. Without thinking, she slid her sword a fraction out of its scabbard. The crackling buzz of the breach filled her ears, and though she knew Leviticus was talking to her, she could not hear him. All her attention was focused on the swirling moor that was swallowing up the train ahead of their car, and suddenly they were hurtling through it. She felt as if her body was held in a bolt of lightning, every muscle suddenly contracting, and just as suddenly the sensation faded. Clenching her eyes, she tried to hold on to it. It was the sensation of power. It was the certain knowledge that reality would not just bend to her will, it would dance to it. It was the strength to accomplish any feat, destroy any enemy, achieve any goal. Though that sense slipped away like sand between her fingers, she could still feel a portion of it smoldering like hot coals inside her. It appears you might be particularly sensitive to the energies of this world. Not everyone has such an ecstatic crossing. It was Leviticus' voice. Victoria opened her eyes to see both he and Alice staring at her. It took her only a moment to recover. Oh, did we cross? I hadn't realized. I must have drifted off. Alice smiled in amusement, before once again digging an irritated Leviticus fruitlessly in the ribs. The train slowed and issued a shrill whistle as steam vented from its cylinders. Rising from their seats, the trio made their way to the rear of the car. Leviticus stepped aside so that Victoria could disembark first. Malifaux Station, he said. Please, watch your step. Everything that was wrong hit her all at once. What had been a warm, golden afternoon earthside sun was now a fragile morning light whose spears pierced grey clouds like icicles. The world looked painted on glass. What light there was was too bright, too harsh, the shadows too deep and the colours luminous and rich in a way the old masters would have killed for. Victoria did not know if this was just another side effect of her passage through the breach, but if it was, it was not fading. Was this life under some distant cousin of the sun? It was invigorating, chilling and unsettling all at once. It even smelled wrong. On the wind came the dirt of the city and the oil smoke of the train mingling with familiar but far-off hints of decaying swamp and distant snows. But the wind here was a strange creature, and its breath held spices and savours unknown. And beyond was a city, just as Leviticus had described. 
The towering buildings could have been old London or even New Amsterdam. And if it weren't for the subtle assault on her senses, it would be difficult to imagine she was in another world. Looking to her side, she noticed that her travelling companion's attentions were riveted on something across the station. Following their gaze, she caught sight of a pale-complexioned woman in a long coat and stockings. She wore a thick fur cap on her head. The woman bowed her head in Leviticus' direction, and the elderly man returned the bow respectfully. Alice dropped a very polite curtsy that Victoria wouldn't have thought her capable of. Ridley Station, now departing, the conductor's voice sounded again, and the ghost-skinned woman quickly boarded the train. Turning, Leviticus smiled warmly, repeating his bow. Producing a card from his jacket, he handed his information to Victoria. Printed on the card in rather bold letters were the words, Leviticus Captivating Salvage and Logistics, and I for every detail. If you have need of my services, the man said in a tone that suggested she would, please look me up. Victoria thought a moment, and then bowed in the style of the Three Kingdoms just to give the old man something else to ponder. I'll do that, thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you both, but I have an appointment I must keep. Farewell. Waving a hand, she departed and was quickly lost in the crowded station. When she disappeared, Alice jabbed Leviticus sharply in the ribs with her elbow again, inspiring a hoarse grunt. Blast your elbows, child, yes! Yes, I saw the sword. You follow her. I'm off to see Mistress Crid. That's all we have time for for you tonight, folks. But tune in to Tales of Malifaux next time for more exciting tales and thrilling adventures as we journey once more through the breach. From everyone here at the city's premier voxcasting station, do stay safe out there. After all, bad things happen. <laughs>